Good morning. Let's pray one more time as we enter into the proclamation of the Word of God. Father, as we open your Word, as we hear from you, Lord, we ask that you would uh, be in our midst, that you would speak to us, that your Spirit would, would make our hearts soft to your Word, and that you would challenge us to be your people, to live in the light of, of all that your Son is and all he has taught us, and that we would be your people, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the other day, I was scrolling through YouTube, and I came uh, across a, a Joe Rogan clip. If you don't know, he's perhaps the, the biggest podcaster in America, and this is not an endorsement of his show. Uh, please don't take this as an endorsement of his show. Um, but it's interesting. He had it on this guest, and I don't even know who the guy was, but... You know, he began talking about, in the midst of his world travels, how he, he came across this nomadic tribe that had, well, this routine. When somebody became old and began to hold back the tribe, you know, somebody would just engage them in conversation and, you know, all politely, as another person would sneak up behind them, whack them on the head, and they would kill them. And Rogan and this guy, you know, they, they, they wanted to distance themselves from any sort of acceptance of that, but yet admit, well, that makes sense. I, I understand the rationale. Nobody should hold back the whole. Nobody should hold back the, the, you know, the whole tribe, potentially put them in, in danger of their own extermination, holding it back, but yet, at the same time, never wanting to endorse it. Never wanting to say, oh, that's a good way of doing things. And why is that? Well, we have this concept known as human rights in our Western, Western world. That people, well, they deserve to live. Have freedom. And, you know, and people, even if it's good for the whole, shouldn't intrude on that without at least some properly sufficient cause. And where did that idea come from? Unbeknownst to Joe Rogan or his guest, this is not something that's been obvious to the world throughout history. This has not been something that is, you know, has just dawned on us from the beginning of, of who we are. No, this is, this is actually a fairly recent idea. And it started... And it began with Jesus. We started last week a, a series going, you know, it, you know, titled, It Was Night Before Christmas. The, and the part of that is that before Christmas, before God took on flesh and dwelt among us, there was a, a night, a darkness to this world that we, didn't, that we didn't even realize or recognize. And it's only in the light of Jesus' coming, Jesus' teaching, and Jesus' uh, gospel going from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth that some basic concepts have filled our culture. And whether you believe in Jesus or not, we're swimming in the waters of, of a world that he's created. The moral universe that springs forth from Jerusalem, from Jesus himself. And such is this idea of, of human rights, that people, well, deserve certain things. 
And I don't want to necessarily get into, you know, certain aspects where there is debate. You know, do people deserve health care or not? Or any such things of, of that nature. But the basic idea that, you know, people do deserve things like life, at least a measure of liberty. Well, those things were not universally known or, or, uh, or believed before Christ. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. It's perhaps a, a fairly well-known passage to, to many of you. It begins on the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and this is what, this is what those scriptures say. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that it may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This is perhaps one of the, the basic you know, presuppositions of the scripture. As God says, as he's about to create humanity, let us make them in our image. And what does he mean by that? Well, this is perhaps too big of a question for us to go fully in depth today. But what it's talking about is the role of humanity in creation, and because of that, their status. They, people, men and women, regardless of our socioeconomic status, regardless of where we are on some, you know, dominance hierarchies, people have a, a unique and special status as the image of God. And so later on, the Lord's going to say, don't murder. Why? Because people have been made in the image of God. People have value that, exceed, that goes beyond their ability to produce, their ability to, to be something. It's why it's so, you know, the idea of, you know, killing some, a member of the tribe because they, they slow down the tribe just seems horrific to many of us is because of this verse. It began here, that man and woman and children have been made in God's image. We're sacred. Regardless of our you know, ability to produce, regardless of whether we are disabled or not disabled, regardless of if we're on the, the good end of the bell curve in terms of intellect or on the bad end of the bell curve, that there's value to people. What is a human worth? Now, as I begin to talk about human rights, it may strike you as banal, cliche, hackneyed. Right? It's, it's things that you know, we, we hear all the time, and nobody seems to really be disputing it. And my, my goal here is not to convince you that, human, you know, that people have have rights. I think for most of us, we believe that, as, at least at some measure. My goal here is to talk about, well, why do we believe that? And the reason we believe it is not because it's obvious. It hasn't been throughout history. It's not because it's, you know, the, the philosophers have found this truth. They didn't. It's not because science declares that this is how things ought to be. They don't. It's because that we have adopted a story about humanity, about what people are worth. 
and it far exceeds our ability to produce. You know, a, a little while ago, uh, Sam Harris, he's one of the, you know, the, the uh, top atheists in, in the world, and Jordan Peterson were having a debate, and during this debate, Sam Harris, he, he picks up a glass of water, and he asks, well, you know, how much is this glass of water worth? You know, you know a couple cents, maximum. And then he poses a question, well, what if I told you that this glass, well, Elton John was drinking from last night at a concert, and you're a huge Elton John fan, this glass might be worth a whole lot to you, right? There's a story that takes this glass that's just, you know, water, and it makes it valuable. It's Elton, Elton John's glass. And then he, he finishes his, this talk about the glass, and, and he, he likens it. He says, you know, to, to finish this analogy, you know, the glass is Palestine, and, and, you know, the Jews and the Muslims are, are fighting over this glass because they believe this story about what God said this land is. And then he says, well, guess what? Elton John wasn't here. And we're about to go to engage in a war where people's lives are going to be lost, and Elton John was never even here. And the, you know, the crowd erupts in, in applause, like, and it's a great one-liner, right? Lives are worth more than land. But when the glass is land, it's Palestine, we can applaud. But what if this glass is you? What if this glass is a person? Are we just the sum of our contents? You know, you boil us down to what we can produce. Or is there value because we're part of a story that makes us more than just our contents? If you tear apart my body and sell it on the black market, is that what I'm worth? Or if you put me in, make me a slave so I can produce a certain amount of labor, is that my worth? Or is my worth something more than just the mere contents of the glass? Because I'm part of a story, a story that gives more value. And so Glenn Scrivener, in commenting on this, he talks about you know, a need for a cosmic Elton John to give us value. Somebody who incorporates us into the story. And this is what we see in the beginning of, the Genes of Genesis. The cosmic Elton John, God himself, who sees people, he makes humanity, and he does so in his image where people are worth something more than their contents. And perhaps this is so, you know, it seems so obvious, but it hasn't been obvious throughout history. Right? Plato, you know, when he's, he's talking about well, the value of human, what does he say? He says, nature herself intimates that it is just for the better, that it's just for the better to have more than the worse, the powerful for the weaker. Justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. How does he view humanity? Well, there's the, there's the superior and the inferior. And the, the existence of the inferior is to serve the superior. And what if they can't? What if their usefulness is up? What are they worth? Well, they're just the contents of the glass. The failures of the, the old world's philosophy, 
to come to this idea of human rights is pronounced. And what does Plato draw upon? Well, nature. You can see it. The strong are over the weak, the powerful over the, over the unpowerful. And how much more if he was you know, citing today's you know, uh, scientific dogma about the, the value of... Well, we see the, the species are getting better as the weak are consumed. What's wrong with the powerful consuming the weak? What's wrong with strong nations consuming weaker ones and strong people consuming weaker ones? He looks to nature and says, the superior rule over dominate the weak, and that is just. The failures of the old world philosophy is to, to come to the idea of, of human, human rights is pronounced as is the failures of the old-time religion. For the Greek and the Romans, their religions, they had nothing to say about human rights. Man was created to be slaves to the gods. Prometheus, the, the titan, he was banished and forever subjected to torment because he gave humans fire so that we could ascend higher than the beasts around us. When the gods came down, they didn't come to give, to save, and to, and to uplift. No, they came to destroy, to let their wrath go, to rape. The gods coming wasn't to uplift the plight of humanity. It was to destroy them. And so Christians came along and proclaimed a different story. <coughs> Excuse me. A story that we are not just a glass of water, that there is this cosmic Elton John that gives us dignity. And not only are we made in God's image, we have this almost absurd reversal where God himself has been made in our likeness as well. What do we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7? <clears throat> Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he became nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The audacity of this claim that Christians began spreading, that not only have we been made in God's image and given this special, pronounced dignity and respect, but no, God cared enough for us that he would be made into our likeness, that he would come and dwell with us. The care of this cosmic Elton John is so pronounced, so much, so vast, that he joined us. <clears throat> and imagine how this would have sounded to the to the Romans as the gospel moved from Jerusalem to Rome, as they pronounced this idea that, that God has took on flesh and dwelt among us. That he cares enough for human beings to, to do so, to, to dwell with us. <clears throat> and not as some king, but of, a, of an oppressed person who would die the humiliating death on the cross. That he wouldn't, when he took on, human, on, on flesh, he didn't do so as Zeus or Apollos, who came to 
rape and destroy. No, he came to to allow the crowds and the people to destroy him, to subject him to abuse. That's the God of the scriptures. And that's the God who has formed our moral world. And it's no wonder that ancient critics of Christianity pointed to this very thing. Excuse me. (coughs) Celsus. He, he writes, you know, this idea that people are somehow have this moral status, and he, he writes that in no way is man better in God's sight than ants and bees. And it's a horrifying notion to him that he says that God would forsake the whole universe and the course of the heavenly spheres to dwell with us alone. Idea. We're just a glass. God doesn't care. God doesn't hold us into some esteem. It's ridiculous, he says. And yet that has changed our minds. And how do we see this playing out in the ancient Roman world? Well, there's many ways to discuss. I'm going to just talk about two of them. The first is how they dealt with children who were unwanted. That they... Let to die of exposure if a child wasn't wanted. We don't want them. They're deformed. They're the wrong sex. It's the wrong time. It's, the, it's wrong at some level. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to take the child and we're going to throw him on the trash heap. Or throw him in a dung pile. Most likely to die from just being malnourished, but perhaps if they're lucky, somebody will pick, a slave trader will pick them up and raise them to be a slave. Or perhaps if it's a girl, be used for prostitution. Or perhaps just to fulfill the pedophilic desires and impulses of a master. That's what they did with children that were unwanted. And so Cicero writes, deformed infants shall be killed. It's not even just a, this is an option. No, this is an obligation. They're just a glass, and the glass is half empty. Start over. They're a burden on society. They're not going to make your life better. They shall be killed. And when he says deformed, it's anything that would be unwanted. Again, wrong sex wrong time, sickly, why bother? The Stoic philosopher Seneca the Younger would would also write, he says, unnatural progeny we destroy. We even drown our children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. Seneca lived in pretty much the exact same time as Christ. As the Stoic philosopher saying, this is what we do. Matter-of-factly, this is just how we operate. Why do we do it? Well, because why would we waste our resources on a sickly and unwanted child? There's no rights. There's nothing that they're owed. No, this is what we do to them. Or we look, we go to the Colosseum, and we see how people, slaves, the unwanted, the dregs, were treated mutilated by beasts, 
given to kill one another. Others hanged on the cross for hours as a, as a sport and spectacle. Women taken out, laid bare to be raped by beasts. What was their objection? No. The Colosseums were filled, were packed with people, cheering at the sport and speculation of men and women being murdered. It wasn't until the gospel came forward, the gospel that proclaims something different, that we, that people, are not just the glass. No, no, no. That there is this cosmic Elton John, one who gives us dignity, one who transforms what our values, that beyond just our ability to produce, that he has come he has given it to us, and he has come to be with us in the person of Jesus, that God cares so much about people, that we are sacred, that we shouldn't be trampled on, that we shouldn't be destroyed for our mere pleasure or because we happen to be a burden at the moment. And so what should we do with this? And give three things. The first is to be grounded. And here I'm talking largely to the skeptics. Those who reject this, this Christian story the, as the, the truth for them. And I want to ask you, well, where does your value of human rights come from? Why are people more than just a glass? You may say, evolution. It seems fitting. It, we, we do better when we work together. And to this, I would say, I'd give a few objections. I don't think it, one, evolution accounts for the story, but two, well, what do you say to a tribe of people who decide, well, we're going to off those who hold us back? Where do you find the outrage when grandma and grandpa are murdered because they can't keep up with the rest of us? By what standard do you judge them and say, you shouldn't do that? No, it's, it fails to, to make the point. It fails to give value to the glass. There's nothing left to, that can stir up our outrage over the, the abuse of what a human is worth because it's simply not there. You may say the Enlightenment the Enlightenment, that's where we got our idea of human rights. Where the shackles of religion were thrown off and rationality was ruled, and so we came to the idea that humans have value. To you, I'd say, hear the chastisement of the British historian Tom Holland. Not that Tom Holland. That Tom Holland. Right. And he... he he is, the, he is an atheist British historian, and he, he writes to his own people, and he says, you know, for the seculars battle-hardened in their long fight against the myths of Christianity, it was easy to forget that secularism, too, was founded on a myth. This myth that had emerged as though from a virgin birth and had owed nothing to Christianity. This idea of human rights, he goes on to say, this is a uniquely Christian imprint on our eye on our ideas and our values. It, without Christianity, it is not there. It is the soil from which this, has, this idea has emerged. 
And so there's a call to choose your miracle. You may find it here at Christmas time, well, almost impossible to believe in a virgin birth. The thing that we proclaim here, you know, during this, this time of season, that, that God himself came on, in, you know, was conceived by the Virgin Mary and was born. And yet we hold on to this other virgin birth, this virgin birth of ideas and ideals, that, that somehow this idea of human dignity in such preposterous of a story has somehow found its way into every part of our society. That has so ingrained our thinking that has so transformed how society views individuals that we cannot escape it. So Jordan Peterson, the psychiatrist, and I'm not necessarily claiming him for Camp Christian, uh, but you know, he, was the, uh, he was a psychiatrist at Harvard University and the University of Toronto for a while, but he, he, he's talking with somebody and he says, you know, I've got this choice of believing two impossible things. I can either believe that the world is constituted so that God took on flesh and was crucified and rose three, day, three days later, or I can believe that human beings invented this unbelievably preposterous story that has stretched into every atom of culture. And it isn't obvious to me that the second hypothesis is any easier to believe than the first, because the more you investigate the manifestations of the story of Christ, the more insanely complicated and far-reaching it becomes. What Peterson is saying is that, you know, when you understand the ways that this Christ story has transformed our, our views of human value and all these things, it seems as insanely hard of a miracle to believe than the virgin birth itself. Every aspect of who we are as a culture flows from this man, this Jewish itinerant preacher from Galilee 2,000 years ago. It has stretched and transformed every part of who we are as a society. And he says that seems more or at least as ridiculous as this idea that God came, became flesh through the Virgin Mary. And not only that, when you reject the Christ story, we are in very in danger of what William Herbert called cut flower ethics. We have up here some, you know, beautiful poinsettias. Um, and before, a couple weeks ago at Thanksgiving, we were given some beautiful roses from my mother-in-law. Now, you probably can't see, but, you know, it's not looking so, so good. I feel like if I bump it, the leaves are all going to fall off, and it's going to be destroyed. The thing about cut flower ethics is that, you know, when you see a flower... And it looks beautiful, but the problem with the flower is, well, it is where it is. If I want to enjoy its beauty, well, I have to go to where the flower is, or I can cut it and take it with me. I can enjoy its beauty. But what happens to said flower when it's been cut? It dries up. It withers. It dies to never emerge again. This idea of human rights apart from the Christian story, the soil in which it emerged, as slowly as that may have happened at points, but ripped up from the soil in which it is grounded, will die. It will wither. There is nothing in our own story apart from the, the Christian story. There's nothing within the secularism of our day that can look at this glass and say it's more than just the water. 
because we said there is no Elton John. So be grounded. Find soil for your idea of human rights. Find a place for it to be nourished. I would, and I would further argue that that place, that soil, is the person of Jesus. The God who has taken on flesh. And to the Christian, I would say, be vigilant. Because we are living in a world with cut flower ethics that has tried to hold on to some parts of the Christian story, but apart from the rule and reign of God, and it is easy, we can begin to see things wither in certain ways. And this may make some of you upset, but one of the ways that we can absolutely see it is how we treat the the young, the unborn. And I'm not talking about, you know, you know if the, the fetus is endangering the life of the mother or any of the, the, you know, convoluted exceptions that we may rouse up in our minds. I'm talking about the notion that we see where today that, you know, abortion within our world is not only accepted, it's praised. People are running campaigns to shout your abortion, to proclaim that it, as it, as it is a, as a good. And let me tell you, let me tell you, just because it's done where you can't hear the screams and the cries, or, and it's done by people with honorifics such as doctor, makes it no less of an affront to the image of God in that baby, as does the exposure of the children in Rome. Just because we're able to keep it from our eyes and our ears, just because we're able to, to turn our heads and not look at it, does, none, does nothing to say that this isn't just an affront to the image of God, because God, too, has given his image to the babies. And how do we know this? Because it's Christmas. Because Jesus was born. That means Jesus was a fetus. Jesus was an embryo. And so the fetuses and embryos, they, too, share in his image. The image of God, the image of the invisible God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. The very same thing that gives us our value has given them their values. Their value. Be vigilant, O Christian. Be vigilant at the world whose, whose idea of human rights is already beginning to wither. Don't be sucked into it. Hold fast. This is part of our identity, part of our inheritance. That people, people have value, no matter how small, and whether they're seen or unseen. And lastly, be amazed. Be amazed. You know, the, the, the mocking of Celsus who views this idea that humans have such value to God, it, in some ways it always just it, it shakes me a little bit. And if it doesn't shake you a little bit, I don't think you've understood exactly what's happening at Christmas. This idea that God not only has made us in his image, but we who turned against him, rebels against his cause, decided not just to come to destroy us, but to come to be with us. 
that God would take on flesh to dwell among us, that God cares so much about human life, about your life. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter the ways that you've rejected him and despised him, no matter the ways that you have shaken your fist at him, yet God has cared about human life and your life in such an extent that he says, I'm going to take on flesh and dwell among them. I'm going to not only dwell among them, but I'm going to suffer for them. I'm going to be crucified, executed, hanged on a cross, that these ones of mine might have life. Such a story, in some ways, it, it, is, it is preposterous. It seems too wonderful. I mean, even for the psalmist, as he's looking at creation, he says, well, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of us, yet you have made us for a little while lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and majesty? What kind of God does that? It's not the gods of the, the pagans. It's not the gods of, of Rome or Greece. It's not the gods of, of Islam. It's, or, no, it's, it's, it's the Christian God. The one who's made you. The one who's taken this glass and he says, I'm going to, to incorporate it into this story where it's not just a glass. No, it's part of this story where there's incredible value. It's been made sacred. It's been made precious. It's more than the sum of its parts because I've come to dwell with them. I invite up the worship team let's, and let's pray. Kind Father, this, uh, these, these truths, while on the, on the surface perhaps seem banal, Yet without them, where would we be? That you have given this, this vision of, of life and, and of human life, one that we hold dear, one that we cherish, one that we need. And Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this thing that I don't think we could ever discover for ourselves. And apart from the, you sending your son I, would, would be a, a, a crazy and absurd idea. And yet we live in this society where it seems like it's just common sense. But Lord, let your people be those who hold fast and hold dear to this idea that, that of your care of humanity. Of the sacred worth of a person. And Lord, let this people, this people particularly be engaged in your mission to care for our world to care for people, that we would love as you love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.